Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 once again. When I was in college, I had an English professor who used to lecture those of us who were evangelicals in her classes of the dangers of what she called being so heavenly minded were of no earthly good. When I first heard that, I thought, oh my, what a terrible thing. That sounds like something awful. I want to make sure that I avoid that. But the more I listened to her, the more I thought about her concerns, the more I became convinced that she was actually pointed in exactly the wrong direction. The more I read the scripture, the more I came to understand her definition of earthly good, which was to be, she, she felt like useful and esteemed and respected and influential in life as we move on beyond college. And to achieve all those goals, she was telling us what we would need to do is to stop being so heavenly minded. I came to realize in reading the scripture that the true danger is not in those who are so heavenly minded, but it's those who are so earthly minded. They become so earthly minded, they're of no heavenly good. They're of no use to God. They become, so, they become so conformed to the thinking and the ways of this world that God really has no use for them in terms of ministering anymore. They may feel that they've achieved some sort of esteem and found some sort of influence and, and garnered some sort of respect before men. But in terms of God and His view of them, they're useless anymore. Their minds are so filled with the pursuits and the goals and the esteem of the world, they've essentially forfeited that which is most useful to God, which is His chief tool of usefulness, His Word, His truth, His wisdom. God never has been in need of your wisdom, of your of your insights or of the insights and wisdom of any man. That's never been really but what he sought after, what he's really longing for. That's never really been what has been impressive to him. And it's really not what's useful to him. What God has always sought after, what he's always wanted, what he's always found useful are those who are solely committed and singly minded in their devotion to his truth to that which is most powerful. People who fill their minds with the pursuit and the esteem of this world forfeit the kind of truth and the kind of wisdom that first struck their own hearts with conviction, that first penetrated their own darkness in their life and first revealed to them the light of the truth and brought them out of that darkness. They forfeit the word which transformed them to begin with and they've replaced it with a wisdom that now conforms to the world around them. And in doing that, they forfeit the thing that is alone powerful enough to change those who are around them. Now this is exactly the kind of exchange that Paul has in mind as he's talking to the Corinthians here. The, the church that was at Corinth, and as he writes this book of 1 Corinthians, it is this exchange of God's wisdom for the wisdom of the world that's the exact kind of trap into which the Corinthians are falling. <coughs> they had become enamored with the wisdom of the world. 
They were forgetting that it was the wisdom of God which made them what they are, which created the life that's in them now. More importantly, they were forgetting that it's the wisdom of the world which they were so subtly embracing, which was the very thing that undermined their spiritual lives and against which God had set Himself in war. Now to that end, Paul is explaining why he had such dogged commitment to a singular message in his life and in his preaching. Why he was so doggedly committed to exclusively the message of God, the gospel of God, the message, which he says, message of the cross, which is the word of God. He's, a, he's explaining why he is so exclusively committed to that which the world considers naive and simplistic and unhelpful and, and foolish, really, in so many ways. He's explaining very simply why he was deeply committed to the singular message of the cross, which he says in 1 Corinthians 1.17, he was called to preach, to preach the gospel, he says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians 1 and even into chapter 2, Paul's presenting a number of reasons why he was committed to this exclusive message of the gospel and nothing else. We began looking at this a couple of weeks ago, just going through all the reasons which Paul lists out here of why he preaches this exclusive message. The first one, of course, was the power of the cross. In verse 18, to those who are perishing, Paul knew that this was foolishness, but to those who are being saved, he says, it is the power of God. It's the only thing that can powerfully penetrate men's hearts. He says, secondly, in verse 19, that he preached this message because he understood the poverty of human wisdom. That is to say that God, in verse 19, is out to destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning he's going to thwart. Paul rejects the wisdom of the world, anything that arises out of human ingenuity and human wisdom, because not only was it unnecessary for the gospel, it was contrary to the gospel. God had set himself against it. And then thirdly, Paul understood the plan of God in verse 21, that God was pleased through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God actually had a plan, he says. And the plan was not to reach people through the sophistication and the insight and the esteem that they come up with by their own thinking, but exactly the opposite. (coughs) God was pleased that he had ordained that mankind would come to know him through a message which appeared to them to be unsophisticated, uneducated, unlearned, And in fact, very foolish. God was pleased through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. See, there's a certain pretense to to some men. There's a a certain kind of uh, presupposition that they bring. And and Paul mentions it here. That that the Jews seek after signs. There are people who who are constantly trying to pin on God their reason for unbelief. 
And they're saying, well, God, if he would do this sign or if he would do this, I would believe in him, I would follow him, I would be one of the most devoted people in all the world. Or there are some people who are trying to pin on God their own excuses saying, look, I'm seeking after wisdom. That's what he says the Greeks are seeking after in verse 23 and 24. God's not sophisticated enough for me. His word isn't isn't, uh, scientific enough for me. His word isn't erudite enough for me. And so they come with all their pretense, all their presuppositions. But ultimately, he says, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. For those of us who are saved... The simple message of the gospel becomes the greatest display of God's power. That is to say, it becomes a sign. And it becomes the greatest display of God's wisdom. Overcoming the curse and the plight and the darkness and the destruction of our own sin. And all the foolishness that's led us to where we are. That leads to Paul's... Next reason why he preached exclusively the message of the cross, which is the praise of God, or the praise of, praise of God's wisdom. And Paul's ultimate conviction and desire was to put on display, in verse 25 he says, that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men, that the most insignificant thought of God, the most simple thought of God, is more deep and profound than the deepest thought that you could ever have on your own. It's more worthy of your attention, it's more worthy of your praise, it's more worthy of your study than all of the the faculties, all the departments of education, all the degrees in the world combined. God's simplest thought. This is what Paul means when he says the foolishness of God. He's talking about the The most basic thought of God, not that God has foolishness, but it's wiser than all that man has to offer. His weakest thought is stronger than the strength of God, the strength of men. So Paul understood this. He understood that man's need isn't a more clever presentation. He's not out there trying to impress them with his eloquence. He's not trying to come up with some new rhetorical flourish, and he's not trying to impress them with his innovation. He knew that if he committed himself to simply the preaching of the simple message of the gospel, it would be enough to powerfully change the hearts of men. And that's what he committed himself to. That's why he was so doggedly committed to that. But he gives another reason for us in verse 26, one that we come to consider today. And that's the proof. That's the evidence. That's the empirical evidence of everything that he's saying. When he says to them in verse 26, consider your calling. Consider your calling, brothers, for a moment. Just think about who you were and where you were. When you came to Christ, fundamentally, this should be evidence enough for you. Something that should be obvious proof for you is just consider your own calling to salvation and to God. Ponder for a moment who you were when you were called, what you were 
in the world's eyes. Where you were in life, consider that, he says. And you'll realize Paul's point that you were nothing. You were nothing. Paul's whole point is that to be on top of the world, to be esteemed, be successful. Thanks, brother. To be esteemed, to be successful in all that the world looks at, to think that somehow you've achieved something and you've got all the world's respect, that's fundamentally opposite of what God's using to bring people to Himself. It's not those people who come to God. It's not those people who call upon God. That's not the profile of the kind of person who becomes God's child, who sees their need for God. So Paul says, consider this. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards or according to the flesh, as some versions say. Basically, they weren't sought after by the world as, as the gifted and the glamorous. And quite honestly, that's not the ones the Lord calls He wanted them to consider that in calling a people to himself, God took no regard for the very things in which the world now boasts. Worldly wisdom, worldly merit. Indeed, in calling them, God chiefly chooses those things and those ones, I should say, who are living contrary to all that, who have come to the exact opposite conclusion. Their pride has been broken. Their thought of their self-sufficiency has, has been eradicated. They've reached the point where they are, they are so broken down in their own wisdom, they've realized the bankruptcy of all the pathways that they've followed. They've, they've realized the darkness of all the, the, the wisdom that they thought that they had. These are the ones who come to God. Just consider where you were. What you thought of yourself when you came to God. If you came to God, it's because you realize just how foolish you've been. If you came to God, it's because you've realized how dark you were. How broken you were. How useless you were. If you came to God, that's the way you came to Him. If you came any other way, you haven't come. Not to the God of the Scripture. These are very reminiscent to Jesus' own words. He says in Luke chapter 11, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, that is the things of the gospel. I thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding And you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He's saying, look, if you come to God, you come to Him. Everyone who comes to Him comes to Him as a little child. That is to say that you look at yourself now in the same kind of weakness, the same kind of foolishness, the same kind of helplessness as a child. That's the only way to come. And he's praising God that his plan of salvation bypasses human pride. The blessings of salvation 
come to mankind who have taken the blow of God's law against their pride and against their own wisdom. They realize that the chief cause of their suffering and the chief cause, in fact, the the overwhelming cause of their condemnation is their own heart and mind, which they have pursued up to that point. And so Jesus' praise comes from the understanding that the greatest blessing and glory for man in the universe arises when God's glory and God's wisdom finally eclipses your own. And you renounce all of that. The gospel truth then is hidden to the wise and the understanding, the intelligent. It's not a designation, by the way, of their mental capacity. There are, there are intelligent men all, all around us who reject the gospel. There are esteemed Men and women all around us, successful, recognized, high IQs who reject the gospel all the time. It's not a statement of your mental capacity that he's talking about. It's it's a statement of your own recognition or your own value that you place on your understanding. This is a reference to those who are wise and intelligent in their own estimation. It's not intellect. In other words, it's an intellectual pride that keeps people from coming to God. It's not wanting to confess their foolishness. The Lord doesn't exclude intelligent people from the kingdom. He excludes those who trust in their intelligence. Paul himself was an intelligent man. He was a well-educated man. Well-versed, well-read certainly knew many of the classic works of Greek literature. He knew multiple languages. He traveled far and wide. And he didn't set aside his intelligence when he became a Christian, but he set aside his intellectual pride. Jesus says God has revealed His truth, though, to those who are children, those who are infantile totally dependent on others. They can't speak for themselves. They have no knowledge. They can't feed themselves. They have no skills, no resources whatsoever to help themselves. Jesus praises God that His plan for salvation is so designed that it undermines the essential pride of man that is behind all of sin and makes itself known to those who declare their dependence on God. You understand that in, at the very beginning, at the, in the Garden of Eden, it was pride that was the first blemish in all of God's creation. It was Satan's pride that was fundamental to his own fall from heaven. It was his pride with which he tried to tempt Adam and Eve into believing that they could be like God, knowing good and evil, that they could achieve a level of intelligence that was on par with God. This was at the root of everything that God opposes, this kind of pride. And so it was at the very outset that God laid out a plan of salvation that would thwart that kind of pride. It would work against it. 
We would stand opposed to it and seek to overthrow it. Jesus praises God for this plan of salvation and Paul praises God for this plan of salvation. He calls us to recognize that when we came to God, we didn't come. We didn't come because of our intelligence, because of our great esteem for our thinking. He says, not many wise, also not many powerful. Men of power could be translated, the influential, the prominent people. A reference to those in high positions in government and religion, anyone in great authority. That's not typically the ones the Lord calls. He adds to that, not many of noble birth, literally well-born people is the word. People in high status because of family connections and, and uh, because of their, their social upbringing. People have been quick to point out, by the way, as they study this and write about this, quick to point out that even in the Corinthian church, there were apparently a number of people who were well off. Unless we get the wrong impression, we remind ourselves, even there in verse 14, Paul mentions the baptism of a man named Gaius. And if you look at Romans sixteen twenty-three, Paul mentions Gaius, he says, as the one who hosted the church in his home. You can imagine that had to be quite a grand home. If Paul's going to, excuse me, if Gaius is going to host the entire church there, he had to have some sort of means. He had to have some sort of wealth. He also mentions in Romans 16, 23, a man named Erastus, who he calls the city treasurer. Actually, there's been inscriptions found to this man, apparently the same man, Erastus, who was named as a great benefactor of the city. He was apparently wealthy enough to bestow upon the city a number of its streets and a number of its buildings. He mentions a man named Crispus there in verse 14, who many believe are the same, is the same ruler of the synagogue who was converted in Acts chapter 18 while Paul was at Corinth. Obviously a man who was a prominent leader, at least in the Jewish community. And there are others who are householders who are mentioned among the Corinthians. Stephanus, Titius Justus, Chloe, who herself apparently had servants. All of these people apparently were people of means. But you know, in fact, one of the great testimonies of the church, the early church especially, was that it wasn't a homogeneous group of people. It wasn't just the down and outers. It wasn't just the rabble of society. There was a great diversity among the church. It was one of the powerful signs of the spirituality of that church as it is of any church. In Galatians 3, we read that the church is made up of Jew and Greek and slave and free and male and female. Every, every cross-section of gender and society and race, barbarian, Scythian. In other words, the point, the point isn't that God cannot or will not save the prominent or the affluent. The point is that these things are so often or excuse me, the point is that these things are contrary to the very gospel that they must embrace. And so if these people come, 
they come renouncing those very things. Letting go, giving up those things. I mean, Crispus is a great example. Read in Acts 18 that he was the leader of the synagogue, but he came to Christ and he was thrown out of his position and rejected by all those around him. He had prominence, but he let go of it in order to embrace the wisdom of God and he forsook that life. Because he understood what God demanded. A repudiation of all of his pride and intelligence. So it's not that God can't do any of these things. But as Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He understood the difficulty in renouncing those things that we pursue And the glory of the gospel lies in the fact that God is merciful toward the very people whom often the most affluent and the most prominent and the most influential typically write off as useless and despise and foolish. It's only only as those influential and those affluent really adopt the mindset of the weak and despised that they're ready for the gospel. If their concern is to keep their prominence and to keep the esteem of those around them and to hold on to all that the world has to offer them, they will miss salvation. But if they come to see the place of their own inadequacy, They see their need. They're drawn to the gospel. They're saved. So Paul says, quite the contrary of everything that the Corinthians had begun to pursue. Wisdom before the world, esteem before the world. Quite to the contrary, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world. That is what the world considers to be foolish. God chose what is weak. That is what the world considers insignificant, opposed to the influential, opposed to the prominent. God chooses the obscure. Verse 28, He chooses what is low and despised in the world. Literally, low birth, as opposed to, say in verse 26, the noble birth, that which is maybe not esteemed socially, despised by the public opinion of them, That's how they're regarded. He says, and even things that are not. That which the world counts as nothing. Those who by human standards are contemptible. Despicable. Amounting to worthlessness. These are the people who are so worthless in the world's eyes, that their opinion doesn't matter, it doesn't belong in the public discourse, it doesn't belong in the public courts, it doesn't belong in the public education, it doesn't belong in any kind of esteemed world of thinking. This is just a catalog of the kinds of people, the qualities of the kinds of people that the Lord calls. He calls the forgotten shepherds, He calls the barren women. He calls the lowly handmaidens. He calls the fishermen. The carpenters of the world. 
He doesn't normally call those from the castles and the corporate boardrooms. He calls the nobodies. Such a rebuke to the church today that wants to find its heroes on the football fields and the films and all the prominent people of glamour around the world. They want to find their heroes. They want to latch on to those Christians or supposed Christians who are in those prominent roles as if somehow that's going to help God and help His cause. I mean, how many times have you encountered someone and they said, oh, did you hear such and such? They said, bless God. You ever hear that? Do you see them? They prayed after they made that touchdown. As if God needs that. As if that's what God seeks after. Listen, this was a cynical assessment of a second century Greek, a man named a man named Celsus, as he described Christianity in these days. He, he says, quote, Their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near, for these abilities are thought to us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone edu- uneducated, anyone who's a child, let him come boldly. By the fact that they themselves admit that these are the people worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves and women and little children of their cause, end quote. That's Celsus. This is, that's the way the world views our message. You understand that? And if you want to be used by God, if you want to be powerful in God's eyes, you embrace that message because it's the only message, Paul says. It's the only message that has the power to change people. The power of the gospel. See, if you assume the presuppositions of men like Celsus about wisdom and prestige, then Christianity and the riffraff that it attracts is proved to be false simply by those that come to it. They're the broken. They're the down and outers. They're the ones who are at the bottom. But if you assume what Paul came to understand, then you realize that it's that very fact that demonstrates the power of the gospel. That this is the only thing that can take even these people who the world recognizes has nothing going for them. And God transforms them and makes them into something beautiful, something powerful, something impactful by their lives. What Celsus, what other people see as the shame of Christianity, Paul sees as his greater glory, you see. God's active work in the gospel overthrowing all the wisdom of the world. This is what he says in verse 28, that God chooses these kinds of people to bring to nothing the things that are. Literally, uh, the, the phrase is to cause something not to work. God chooses these people 
to demonstrate and to frustrate the world because the world and seeking after all of its wisdom and all of its prominence continues to come to an end of itself. It continues to see its life unravel. It continues to see its marriages and its homes and its careers and its peace and its happiness just unravel as they grow deeper and deeper in their materialism and their pride. God renders everything that they are ineffective for the very thing that they think they're pursuing. He strips them of their power and glory. He nullifies the effects of what they think they're after. And ultimately, at the end, He brings it all crashing down. When they stand before God, in judgment when they spent their life seeking after their own pride. They're the losers. They're the losers. This is what Paul says over in chapter 2, verse 6. He speaks about the wisdom, he says, of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. God's wisdom in the gospel has already been validated in its effect in your life. And it will be completely validated in the new creation. In the judgment and in heaven. God's bringing to nothing the wisdom and the pride and the prestige of this world. You can see it in individual lives as they unravel under the madness of their own ego and pretense and materialism, but ultimately you'll see it at the return of Christ when the last, Jesus says, will be first. The world measures greatness by many standards. At the top are the intelligent, the wealthy, the prestigious, the glamorous, all the things which God Himself has determined to put at the bottom, you see. And he reveals the greatness of his power by demonstrating that the world's nobodies are his somebodies. Nothing that this world needs or seeks after is necessary to God. In fact, it's contrary to him. Those things which the world sees as useless, God takes as his prized possessions. So a simple uneducated, untalented, clumsy believer who trusts in Jesus Christ as his Savior and faithfully and humbly submits himself to the Lord is immeasurably more useful and wiser than the most brilliant PhD who seeks after the wisdom of the world and scoffs at the gospel. A believer who submits himself to God has his life renewed by forgiveness, by love, by grace, by peace, by a renewed heart, by hope, by life, and by knowing God. The unbelieving PhD, on the other hand, knows nothing beyond his own books, his own mind, his own experience, and ultimately the darkness of his own sin. All that brings us to the ultimate 
purpose for all this and the sixth reason Paul gives for why he preaches exclusively the gospel and the wisdom of the cross, which is the purpose. What's the purpose? He says in verse 29, why does God do all this? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that no human being would boast. You think, well, isn't that coincidental? I mean, that, you know, all these kind of weak and foolish people are the ones who happen to become Christians. Isn't that just kind of a coincidence? No? It's what God's doing, you see. It's in His powerful, electing purpose. He chooses these kinds of people. Because he's working out a plan and a purpose that no one would boast. God's not going to risk his glory. God's not going to put his glory at risk by, by just taking all the wise and intelligent and letting them continue to stand on their own pretense and their own boasting. Put a confidence in themselves. God has chosen, Paul says, back In verse 26 and 27, verse 27, God chose what is foolish. He chose what is weak. Verse 28, He chose what is low and despised. This is the one God's chose. God deliberately chose the foolish things of the world so that He could remove forever any possible grounds on their part of standing in the divine presence with anything from themselves. The election of such people reveals God's ultimate divine intent to obliterate completely all human grounds of boasting. Think, well, I I can handle it. See, I mean, I can embrace the wisdom of the world, and I can also have a little bit of the wisdom of God, but there's a lot of things I find useful in the world. Listen, if you're of that mindset, you're foolish. If you think that God is going to risk His glory and to let you stand thinking that you gained something that didn't come from Him, if you think that He's going to tolerate that kind of self-sufficiency, If you think that he's going to allow you to stand and say, well, much of this was accomplished by you, God, but then there's some things that were accomplished by us. You see, look what he says there in verse 29, because, excuse me, verse 30, because of him. In fact, in the Greek, the the first words in the sentence are of him. Standing right there prominently at the very beginning to emphasize that He is the source. It is His doing, as the New American Standard says. God is the one who has made you to belong to Christ and has made Him to become to us wisdom from God. He's the one who has overwhelmed you with with the message of the gospel. Christ has become our wisdom. The gospel and the cross of Christ has become our main point of wisdom and understanding for all the world. It has become our worldview. And in case you have any doubt of what Paul means when he says that, he lists three summary statements 
of what this wisdom is. And in grammatical terms, we call these appositional statements. They are restating what this wisdom is. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It's become to us, this is what we realize now is important. This is what we realize now is valuable. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And God's our source for all those things. Righteousness simply refers to your, your rightness before God. Being able to stand before God and not be wrong, not be sinful, not be guilty, to be right with God. And that doesn't come from you doing something or obeying something or, or achieving something. It comes completely from Christ. He's the complete source of all that. And then your sanctification, which is basically a word for being set apart, set apart from the world and set apart to God, who, being set apart from sin and from a pathway of sin and being set apart to God. He says Christ is your source for those things. His wisdom and, and His cross and His power are the things that produce all of that within you. And redemption, which is a word for being set free. For being bought back, if you will, from, from the slave market of sin. Christ is the only one who has the power to transform your life in that way. Romans 6.17, thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin... You've been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. It's all because of the power of God. The standard of teaching to which you were committed, he says there, the gospel. Set free from the dominating and destructive power of sin and brought back into a proper relationship with God. So God provided one way of salvation. One way of sanctification, one message, one exclusive content of our preaching, the wisdom of God, Paul says in verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That comes from Jeremiah 9.23. I want to flip over there and just read that to you. Jeremiah 9.23. It's not a new principle. It's something the Lord has done over and over again. This is what he says. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord. If you're going to boast, that's what you need to boast in. You need to boast that although you know nothing, and although you have no wisdom, 
And although all of your ways and all of your choices and all your pathway has brought you to a path of destruction, if you're going to boast, you need to boast that you've come to know the Lord. He's rescued you from yourself. This is the power and the plan and the proof and the purpose of God's wisdom. If He's designed it so that it produces such exclusive glory to Him, why would you preach or teach or give your heart to anything else? Which is exactly what Paul says in the next verse. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, I didn't proclaim, I didn't come proclaiming the, test, uh, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's our message. That's why we're committed exclusively to the message of the cross. That's why we're committed exclusively to the wisdom of God and nothing else. Because ultimately it has the power, it's God's purpose, most importantly, it's His purpose to bring glory to Himself. Let's stand together, we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. While you're standing, I just want to challenge you. Some of you are here today still living by your own wisdom, still walking by your own intelligence, still following your own pathway. You've heard a message from God today. Whether or not you listen, we can't dictate. But God has made known to you His wisdom. And if you would repent and turn from your sin, God would give you true wisdom, redemption, salvation, and sanctification. Our challenge to you today is that you wouldn't leave today without renouncing your own path and giving your heart and your life to Him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful, so thankful today that You've given us wisdom, that You've called us out of the darkness, that You called us who were foolish and dark and lost and under destruction. And You've given us a path of life May you continue to guide us on that path. May you make us committed to it above everything else. May you save those who still walk the way of their own mind and heart. May you save them for your glory and your purpose. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.